Glad to be with you this morning. My name's Jack, one of the elders here at Remedy. Um, when I went backstage, there were three of you, and you have multiplied, so that's good. Glad you're here this morning. Um, we're in a second part of a sermon on Matthew 18, verses 1 through 20. So if you were here with us last week, uh, you heard the first part. If you were not here with us, let me give you a little bit of a, of a rundown of <clears throat> what we talked about so that you can... Uh, be tracking with us this week. Um, in Matthew 18, there is a transition in the book of Matthew. We've been going all the way from Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, and now we're in Matthew 18, and there's a transition where in Matthew, uh, up to this, Jesus has been ide- identifying himself as the Messiah, the promised one, the one who is coming. And when you get to Matthew 18, the turn where Jesus takes here is he, he now goes to not just that he's building a kingdom, not that he's putting together this community of believers, but now it is how that community, that kingdom works together. If you're part of this kingdom community, this is how you live, this is how you think, this is how you function. Um, and so he's, he's taken this and he begins these teachings. We say he leaves, leaves some um, overarching principles Uh, He doesn't give you specifics on how to act in every situation. But what he does is this amazing way is lays out these beautiful principles that as you start interacting in each and every one of our situations, he teaches us how we as his people reflect him and reflect the gospel in our relationships, in the way we think, in the way we operate um, as a community. And in doing so, we, we live the gospel amongst each other, but we also display and have opportunities to proclaim the gospel to those who are outside of the community. And what we did last week was uh, we looked at verses 1 through 4 and then verses 10 through 14 and discussed how Jesus brought out in these passages the need for humility. And we defined humility... Um, both humility and looking at ourselves and humility and looking at others. Um, the, the definition I used was one put out by John Calvin in commenting on these verses, and this is what he says. And hence we may obtain a short definition of humility. That man is truly humble who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God, nor proudly despises brethren or aims at being thought superior to them but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that the head alone should be exalted. And so we said that we're we're looking at this in the sense of we're not trying to be better than somebody else. We're not trying to get somebody else to our level. What we want to do is we understand that we are Christ's and that is enough. And that is we want him to be exalted He is the greatest. He is the standard, not us. And our desire is that everyone would look to him and not us, and we wouldn't lord anything over everybody else. And so we saw this, and Jesus points out that we need to be humble in looking at ourselves and then humble the way that we look at others. And then we get to the fun part, sin. You know, doesn't everybody want to be the guy who gets to talk about sin? I mean, that's the thing. You get up here and like, okay, man, it's... We, we, we're talking about how we need to deal with sin. And here's what I want to do before, before we even get going this morning. Because the reality is, is when you start talking about sin, and start talking about what you need to do with sin, one of two things can happen. One is we can kind of deceive ourselves and say, I, I don't have anything I need to, I need to work on. I'm, I'm pretty good. Now, most of us won't fall into that camp. Um, but 
as we're working through this and as you're working through reading the scripture and life and you see interactions with people that that bring sinfulness up in your life uh, Christ this morning tells us how to deal with that the other thing that we can fall into if we're not careful is this kind of um, despair about sin Oh, I'm not, I'm not good enough because I got this in my life. Or I can't do this because this is in my life. Or, or that person's so much better than me. And, and what we want to do this morning is not look at sin in the sense of beating everybody over the head. But what we want to do is that as Christ reveals our sin, and we say this all the time, as Christ reveals our sin, he doesn't do it just to make us feel bad. He does it so that we see it and it grieves us. But then he comes in and provides us what we need to deal with that sin. And he, he takes it by the power of the gospel and we're made more like him. And our worship is increased and our affections for him are deepened because he does what we cannot do in dealing with our sin. So this morning as we talk about sin both in our, in our lives personally and then on a really tough level of sin within the church, how we deal with that. Let us, let us go to it with a desire of saying, when sin is removed, the love of Jesus is deeper, the gospel is magnified, and unity is brought forth in such a way that this amazing, beautiful thing, this kingdom community comes together. So I want to pray before we dive in and start talking about this, and so I ask you if you would to pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for this word. I thank you for the opportunity to to be here and to stand under it. And I thank you, Father, for taking this word and already applying it to my heart. And I ask this morning that um, we could just sit under you Lord, not leave here guilt-ridden or not leave here prideful, but leave here rejoicing that our Savior loves us, loves us enough to not leave us in sin, but to draw us out. I pray, guys, we talk about something which could be a weighty topic, that it would be a cause for rejoicing. So, Father, I pray even now that you would be exalted. I pray that you guard my mind and my mouth and I would speak that which honors Jesus and that we would be a people who live in the kingdom of the community the way you designed it. And we love you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So this whole thing starts. Jesus' disciples, they come up to him. They want to know who is the greatest. And Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. He gets right down to it and he tells them, you're, you're totally thinking about this the wrong way. He even shocks them by saying, unless you become like a child, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, in, and then Jesus uses this term little ones constantly. And as he does, all through this passage, he uses this term little ones. And he does it to refer to those who have this childlike humility that comes when the, the Spirit comes, convicts us of our sins, opens our eyes, shows us our need for Christ. We're not better than anybody else. Nobody's better than us. We all are in desperate need of a Savior. And that Christ alone provides what we could never work up in ourselves or achieve anywhere else or find in any other place. And it brings a a deep sense of of humility. 
Well, then Jesus gets to verse 5, and this is what he says. If you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to read along as I, as I read it out loud. It says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, one of the things, when, when Jesus brings this up, he talks about this need for humility, he kind of gives us a comparison. He says, whoever receives one of these little ones, and we've already talked about that's, that's the disciples. These are the ones who are following Christ, the ones who've given their heart to him, who've, who, are, who have been humbled by the Spirit and who are living in that humility. Jesus says, whoever receives one of these in my name receives me. And again, you see this connection of Jesus with the little ones. They're not just his. They are closely his. So much so that when we receive one another, and it's got to be more than just, hey, let them come hang out with you. Let them come to a church service on Sunday morning. And the reason we know this is because what Jesus compares it to. He compares it, are you going to receive them or are you going to make them stumble? So this is more than just, we'll let you hang around with us. This is a bringing in, a pulling into community, which involves a desire and a help to move towards Christ. This reception is, you are included, you are here, we are together pursuing Jesus, walking forward, living on mission, being the people that you have called us to be. And we know that because, well, look at how Jesus compares it. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the depths of the sea. I mean... It almost kind of seems melodramatic when you read it first. You're just kind of like, whoa, easy, Jesus. You know, is, is it really that serious? And as you read this, one of the things that just really came out to me this week as I was studying this is the intensity that Jesus talks about sin. Listen, I mean, he says, receive them, bring them in, you've accepted me. But if you put a, literally the Greek is a stumbling block, something that goes in front of them that causes them to fall down. Jesus said it would be better for you if you had a millstone, which was this giant stone that was used for uh, grinding grain, and they would hook a donkey up to it, and it would walk around in circles. I mean, it's this massive stone weighing tons. Jesus said it would be better for you to take, tie one of those around your neck and be plunged into the depths of sea. It would be better for you for that to happen than for you to cause one of his followers to sin. And again, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you guys feel this the same way that I do, that as I'm reading Jesus' words, you almost expect Jesus. You know, we kind of got this picture or some people have this picture of Jesus. He was just kind of, you know, he's kind of nice. And, and he was nice. But, you know, he's just kind of just, he's just happy. And just, you know, kind of like a hippie who's just, you know, wandering around the countryside with his guys. And he's telling us just love and be nice. And he does say love and he does say be nice. But he does say if you don't become like a child, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He tells the Pharisees they're like whitewashed tombs. They're a brood of vipers. And he comes to us and he says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than for you to cause somebody to sin. And Jesus, the Son of God, stands before us and lets us know it is serious when we start talking about sin. And so then we get into verse 7. And he says, woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. 
but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Now, what is it about sin? Jesus comes up and he says, it's necessary. Temptations are going to come. Jesus recognizes, puts before us, he knows better than we do that we are in a fallen world. We have an adversary who comes against us. We are sinful. It will happen. Jesus put it, puts it out there. And almost, some of the commentators brought out the fact that it, it almost seems as if Jesus is even putting this out there for the disciples to say, Guys, just just get ready. Temptations are going to come. It's going to be there. The world, it says, woe to the world. The world is going to try to get you to stumble. The world doesn't love me. The world doesn't love you because they don't love me. They're going to want things to happen to you. They want to see you fall. They're going to want bad things to happen to you. But Jesus right now isn't talking about the world. He's talking about within the community. So he says, woe to the world. Temptations are going to come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And he's just said, if any of you causes one of these little ones to stumble. And so now what he's doing is we've got this real introspective saying, is there some kind of sin in my life that would cause somebody else, especially those who are members of the community of faith, is there some sin in my life that would cause one of my brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble? And if so, I've got to deal with it. And again, Jesus uses some uh, very strong language um, in verse 8. He says, and if your hand or, or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown in eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, if you've been with us, that probably sounds familiar to you because if you remember back on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 5, 27, uses the almost the exact same words when he starts speaking of how do we deal with lustful thoughts and adultery. So my question is, why does Jesus repeat the exact same word in two different contexts? Because what he uses, he uses a, uh, a grammatical tool or word usage called hyperbole. And it's this almost an, an exaggeration to make a point, to show you how serious it is. And what Jesus says in both of those things is if there's part of your body that causes you to sin, cut it off. Deal with it severely because it is better for you to not have that body part, though it be very indispensable, it is better to get rid of it if it'll keep you from sinning. And here's what I think is important. Um, dealing with personal sin is important for both our personal pursuit of holiness and the good of the community. Jesus repeats these exact same words. It, earlier, he's talking about our personal pursuit of holiness. We're to seek the goodness and, the, and the, the holiness of God, and we are to go at it with reckless abandon, getting rid of anything and everything that focuses us in on sin. And now, as Jesus comes to the community, he uses the same words, and what he does is he helps us to see that our personal sin doesn't just affect us. It affects the community. 
And as if it weren't enough that our sin is against God and that we would need to deal with it there, Jesus helps us to understand that when you're part of this community, when you're part of this family, you're part of this fellowship, and you have personal sin, it doesn't just affect you. It can cause other people in here to stumble. And if that's the case, we're in big time trouble. Jesus said it'd be better for us to have a millstone tied around our neck than to let our sin that we won't deal with affect other people who are around us in the household of faith. Now, I got to admit to you, when, when, I was, when I was studying this and I felt like the Lord opened my eyes to that, there was just, I just had to sit there for a second. Because I didn't really think about the fact that my personal sin, stuff that I deal with, stuff that our culture says, that's just you. That's just you. That doesn't affect anybody else. Your thought life doesn't affect anybody else. The way you deal, the way you do your taxes doesn't affect anybody else or whatever. Let's just pick our sin. The way you operate in the business world, the way you talk to your friends, that doesn't affect anybody else. They're not part of your church. The Bible here, and Jesus himself is telling us that if we don't deal with that and pursue recklessly holiness and the goodness and wonderfulness of God and walk away from our sin, it will affect the community of believers. So Jesus tells us we must deal with it severely. Uh, Paul writes a similar thing in uh, Romans 14. He says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. And he says that in the context of loving our brothers and not doing anything whatsoever to cause them to stumble. So much so that if there's something that we can do in Christian liberty and there's nothing that would cause God to look at us, we are under the gospel, there's nothing that is condemning about it for us. But if we know that what we're about to do would cause somebody else who's a brother or sister in Christ to stumble in their faith, to sin, to do something um, that would dishonor Christ, that if we know that, even if it doesn't bother us, we, we walk away from it. Because we're Christ's and we want his people to be loved and to live in such a way that they are not hindered in their walk with him and that they follow him deeply and passionately. So a, a word of application about this is something for us to think about. We, Jesus is not teaching that self-effort covers our sin. Okay, Jesus is not teaching here, okay, so if you've got a sin, you've got to fix it. And I'm going to sit back and wait until you do. We know that from the whole of Scripture and Jesus himself, that it's the gospel that covers our sin. All of the teaching and everything of Scripture points us to the fact that we cannot fix ourselves in any way. We can't. So the gospel comes, the Scriptures bring to light those things which are sinful, and it reveals the lies of Scripture, that it's trying to fulfill something that it can't fulfill, that it's trying to complete something that it can't complete, that it's trying to satisfy in a way that it never can satisfy. All the way back to the garden, the lie was God doesn't love you, He doesn't want you to have the best, He's not going to take care of you, He's holding out on you. And Adam and Eve believed the lie, and it wrecked the entire world. And Scripture brings to light the lies of Scripture. Pride 
tells us that we are better than everybody else. Scripture tells us you're no better than anybody else. I mean, we could go through, we could go through a list if we wanted to do that, but that's not the point of what we're doing here today. The gospel tells us you can't fix yourself, but Christ has provided everything you need to be reconciled, redeemed, and restored. And so as we see Scripture, we trust those promises. We trust. We see it. It reveals to us that sin is lying to us. It shows us what the truth is, and we trust that. Even if we can't feel it at the time, and we don't see it, and we don't understand it, we understand that what God has promised and what God has revealed to us is truth. Sin is telling a lie. And so right now, I'm going to fight with all my being to trust and understand that and follow that. And so the gospel comes and it takes away our sin and makes us like Christ. And it's passages like this that help us to understand that as we are trusting those promises, there are things which are going to try to pull our our, uh, attention away. Things that are going to tempt us. So if you're a guy and your temptation is looking at stuff on a computer you don't need to be looking at, then don't just say, I'm going to trust the gospel and keep the computer up. You shut that thing down. You turn it off. You throw it away. You do what you got to do so that you can trust this and don't keep things in your life. They're going to keep you from trusting the truth of the gospel. If you're a woman who struggles with vanity you don't keep buying the magazines that tell you you got to look a certain way or you got to dress a certain way or you've got to have this, that, or the other. You don't keep the subscription. You burn those things and you say, Christ is sufficient. I have what I need in him. I am beautiful in his sight because I've been redeemed by him. I am made by him. And you don't keep filling your mind with the stuff that keeps you from trusting that. It's what Jesus is telling us here. If there's something in your life that is leading you into this sin, you get rid of it and you pursue relentlessly Christ because it's not just you who is affected. It's all of the community. And this is why, this is why I think Jesus is, is it's just amazing. He talks about you gotta have humility because before you can deal with sin, you've got to be humble. Because if you're not humble, you're not going to deal with sin. You don't think it's a big deal. And you're really not going to care how your sin affects everybody else. But when Jesus opens our eyes to the truth of who we are in front of him and in the magnificence of the cross and what he has done for us, we then, because we are the little ones, will say, God, what is it that I've got to deal with? And we are broken and wrecked over our sin and in a place to trust the gospel deeply so i plead with you is there something in your life that god's bringing up that you've got to deal with and are there things in your life that are there that are keeping that temptation in front of you and and keeping pushing you towards believing the lies of sin and not trusting the truth of the gospel will you deal with it in the way that jesus says to deal with it so we've got to view our we must view our sin with humility but then also jesus says that we must view the sin of others with humility. So, so Jesus, he, he talks about the little ones, and then he talks about how we've got to deal with sin, and both, you know, our, our sin personally, 
And then he goes back and he talks about again the value of the little ones to God, which is where he has the parable of the the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go find the one, and the, the shepherd rejoices more over the one who is found than the 99 who didn't stray. And, and Jesus, again, he's bringing us back to this humility to understand every person in the community is important to God, has been purchased by God, has been sought out by God himself to be redeemed back to himself. We've got to get that before we go to this next part because this next part may be one of the hardest things we as a group of believers will have to do. Because look at what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell all your friends so that you can hate him. No, wait, that's not what it says. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, here's one thing I want to say. This passage here, is, is the, uh, the classic text for pastors, theologians, elders, as we go through and talk about how do we deal with sin within the church. Jesus is teaching here. And note, you'll notice right there in the very first part, it says, if your brother sins against you. Now, before we get into this, here's what I want to say. I don't believe that Jesus gives us this passage only for the way of dealing when somebody sins just against us. Here's why I think Jesus puts this passage this way. This is more difficult than any other situation. Because think about it. If you are the one who's done the sinning and the Spirit is convicting you, it's a lot harder to go to somebody and say, hey, you've sinned against me, than it is sometimes to say, hey, look, I, I messed up. I made a mistake. I sinned against you. Or... If you see somebody else sinning over there, to be able to then go and talk to them. Now, none of those are easy. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. None of those are easy. Those are difficult. So much so that most of us, if we're just just be honest, when it's somebody else's sin, we just don't want to do anything. We either, most of us go to the fact of we're just not going to, we're not going to confront it because we feel as if we have no, no right to do that, no place to do that. Who am I to tell them that they've sinned? I know my heart. I know who I am. Again, Jesus is not telling us this because we are the better ones and they should be like us. Jesus is concerned about the holiness of the community. But the other extreme that some people get to, some people like pointing out the faults of others. Some people are quick to show people where they've messed up. And what Jesus does here in just such a beautiful fashion is he helps us to understand that we can't ignore sin and we can't go beating people over the head who have sinned. The option is, in love and humility, to deal with it one-on-one. Don't ask advice from five people that AKA is a prayer request, which is literally, I'm going to tell you about all the horrible things somebody has done to me. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't say, go to your small group and get 12 people praying about this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go to him one-on-one just between the two of you. And what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us an understanding of how we deal with sin within the body. This isn't the only place that it happens. Um, and, and then there's also, what I want to do is, there, there's not, this is not the only place where Jesus tells us or the Bible tells us that we are to um, help those, confront those. We don't like that term because it seems mean. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not using confrontation in the uh, go punch them in the face sense. Uh, but confrontation is you just got to talk about something that's very awkward. Um, but this is not the only place. So, for instance, Jesus says in Matthew 7, um, a text that is sometimes used out of context, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? And sometimes people will stop there and say, see, I can't say anything to anybody who's got sin because I'm a sinner myself. But look what Jesus says. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will, be, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, here Jesus doesn't say, because you're a sinner, you can't talk to anybody about sin whatsoever. But what he does say is that when it is time to talk to somebody about sin, we have to examine ourselves and find out, is there any sinful way within me right now? Am I doing this for sinful motives? Am I doing this um, in, in, in a blind regard to something that's glaring in my life? And Jesus says, deal with that and then you will be able to. So Jesus doesn't say we're not to do it. He says deal with your own sin so that you can then help your brother. Uh, the book of Galatians says this, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So even Paul in Galatians here is telling us That if somebody is caught in sin, those who are spiritual, not a term of, hey, you're better than them, but those of you who haven't been caught in sin or those of you who are thinking rightly about things, go to them and help restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Again, you've got this whole idea of humility that's being played out. And then in James 5, 19 through 20, James writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, one of the things that was interesting as we look at this, it says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him, meaning the wanderer, brings the wanderer back, let him, still the wanderer, let the wanderer know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You see, because here's the flip side of the coin, is that if we are in sin and are confronted, we have to have the right perspective on that. Because for most of us, if our sin is confronted, our perspective is one of defense. Partly because we know we're guilty inside, Partly because we may not feel guilty. 
And so what we've got to do is as we're engaging in this process, and this is all preliminary. This is, I want us to be thinking about this rightly before we get here because this can be misconstrued in all kinds of ways. So what it has to be is people who are in the community all striving to live in holiness, all seeking to be humble in saying, I'm coming to you because this sin is in your life and I want the best from you and I want the best for you and I want you to know and love Jesus. And then if you're on the receiving end, striving and praying that God would give you the kind of heart to say, is there something sinful in my life? Have I done something wrong? Did I do something that I didn't even realize was going on? Or being willing to say, yes, there's sin in my life. And you have pointed it out and nobody else has. And I've known it. And I know that I need to repent and follow Jesus. So all of that's the background. So the Bible is not just talking in Matthew 18 about us dealing and helping each other with our sin. So, so how do we do this? Well... There's a, there's a process that Jesus gives. First is the one-on-one. We've talked about that. Um, one of the amazing things is, is this guards against more sin, such as gossip and lies and slander and things of that nature. Um, and notice that what the goal is. It says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal of this entire process is restoration. It is explicitly stated in verse 15, but as you go on, you will find that it's implied in every single verse, because notice, Jesus says, if he listens, you've gained him. But then when you get into uh, 16 and uh, 17, um, he talks still about the idea of listening, refusing to listen or to listen. So there's a connection here. Jesus doesn't say those exact words over and over and over again, but he does use this term listen, and it connects us back to know that the whole point of what's going on here is not to, um, to shame somebody, is not to get to the final point of excluding them from membership in the church. That's not the goal. The goal is that they would see their sin and repent and have relationship with each other and relationship with Christ deepened and restored. That's the point of all of this. So Jesus says, if somebody sins against you, go to them one-on-one. And then he says, if they refuse to listen to you, bring two or three people with you, two or three witnesses. And this echoes Deuteronomy 19.5 where the law stated that any type of charge against somebody had to have two or three witnesses. And that kept somebody from just being a he said, she said, or my word against your word. It was these three people had seen this and they were to go to the judge. Well, it's, it, it echoes that, but it's not that exactly. Jesus didn't say and these three people had to see what happened. But what he's saying is, You've gone to this person. They refuse to listen. They don't admit. They said, I was not wrong. I did not do that, whatever the case may be. And then Jesus says, you get two or three people and you take them with you to then go and talk to this person again and confront them again. The amazing thing is about having those two or three people is not only do they verify that the process has been done the way that Jesus set it out, but Let's just say, for instance, that that I have a problem with Ben. And so in my mind, I've construed that Ben has sinned against me. Why go to Ben? And Ben, because he hasn't sinned against me, won't admit it. 
And so I'm being prideful, and I think that I'm doing this the right way, so I'll go get a couple of people to go with me. And then as we're confronting Ben, it becomes obvious that I'm the one with the sin problem. Now I've got two or three brothers who there can help me. That's one of the benefits of having this two or three. But then also, you've got two or three brothers who, if the person you're confronting is in sin, you've got two or three people who are there, who are helping guard each other against pride, who are helping to make sure this is done the right way, who are pleading with this person to repent and be restored. And then the Bible says if they won't listen to the two or three, then you're to bring them in front of the church. Now, this is the second time Jesus used the word church. He's tied it in to Peter's confession, and we'll see an even closer tie here in just a second. But it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church. So then the idea here, Jesus, Jesus is stacking this up. We see he's teaching. We see what he's showing and so it's understandable then that what happens is the entire church now is hearing about the sin in this person's life. The entire church is pleading with this person to repent. And now you're at the point where if there is a person who is living with sin, who cares nothing about it, the entire church has come together and said, This is wrong. This is sinful. We've gone about this biblically. We love you. We want you to be restored. You are refusing to repent. If that person still says, I am not in the wrong, Jesus says you are to then treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, we have to remember that Matthew was a tax collector. So Jesus loves tax collectors, okay? Um, And we have to remember this is not a derogatory term. Jesus didn't say and spit on them. He didn't say and making fun of them. He he says you're to treat them as you would a Gentile and a tax collector. And then the Jewish mindset, a Gentile and a tax collector is somebody who is outside of the family of God. They are not part of God's people. And what Jesus says here is you need to, and Jesus says in other places, you will know them by their fruit. Jesus says this person has shown you that they don't even look like they're part of the family of God. Because the entire family has come together and says, this is wrong, God's word says it's wrong. You're to now treat this person as if they are not a believer in Christ. Which means they need to hear the gospel. Which means they're not a follower of Christ. Which means they need to, to place their faith in him. And so it's not a term of derision. This is not something that churches hold over somebody's head. Hey, you need to act right or we're going to kick you out and then you're not going to heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying is if you've gone through all of this process, this person has revealed that the fruit of their heart is they're not a follower of Christ. And so instead of viewing them as a member of the kingdom of community, you need to understand they're not even part of the community. They need to repent and place their faith in Christ to become part of the community. And so even in that, the whole idea is restoration. This may be one of the most difficult things that churches would ever have to do, which is why churches don't do it. I've never been a part of a church who's exercised church discipline. I have been part of opportunities to, I don't say opportunities in a positive light, but times when this whole thing has been started where you go to one-on-one and then you take two or three. 
In one situation I was in, I remember there were two of us who went and talked to somebody, and they refused to repent, but then they just left. They were gone. They didn't even want to have anything to do with the church. They didn't have anything whatsoever. So it didn't have the opportunity then to be taken to the next levels. Um, we as a church believe the scriptures. And I'm praying that there will never be a day that this has to happen in Remedy. But one of the things is that we are committed to is that if, Lord forbid, if this ever has to take place, I pray that we would be a church who would be willing to follow the hard commands of Jesus, um, who would say, yes, we're going to do this. This is how we handle issues. This is how we will do it, because this is the way that Christ has set it up. And it is a way that is done in love and humility and gentleness, and not meant to lord authority over someone, or to show uh, spiritual superiority over someone but in a desire that first and foremost Jesus would be honored, and secondly, that they would be turned back to Christ. Um, Because this is so difficult, I think is the reason why we find Jesus saying what he does in verse 19 and 20. It says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, really, eighteen through twenty, and, and eighteen right there. That should sound familiar to you. Probably even more, maybe even more familiar than the uh, quotation that we found in Matthew five, because this is in Matthew sixteen. If you remember, when Peter makes the confession, and Jesus said, "You are the rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church," and Jesus says the exact same thing. And what this helps us to understand is when Jesus was saying that to Peter. We understand Jesus wasn't just saying that to a person or to an office. Jesus is saying this to the church. So the very thing that he said to Peter, whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven, Jesus now puts that out in front of the church. We are the ones who have the gospel. That is not a pride thing. That is a Jesus is here with us. He operates in and through us. We proclaim the gospel. We, we tell people about Christ. We proclaim repentance offered in the name of Christ. And Jesus says, whatever happens with that is true. And I am there with you. And Jesus says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, let's just, uh, I won't go spend a long time on this, but there are a lot of people who abuse this. Uh, There are a lot of uh, theologies who take this to mean that if you just name it and claim it, you get whatever you want. Jesus is not saying that if two or three of us gather on the front row and believe intently that a million dollars will appear here on this altar, that that's what's going to happen. Keep this in context. We have to understand this in the context of what he's saying. Jesus isn't talking about something new. He's still talking about community and dealing with sin. And he is telling us when this is difficult and this happens and you have to go there and you've examined yourself and you have done this biblically and you've done it in love and you're remaining faithful and it breaks your heart to have to do this but you're willing to follow me and I'm more important to you than any type of friendship or what even the community around you may think because you're loving me and you're following me and you're doing it in such a way that honors Christ. Jesus says, hey, I'm there with you. I've not deserted you in this. I've not left you alone. I'm not pretending like it's not easy. But what I am doing is I am right there with you. And notice that I will work through you. 
So when you agree, I am there. That doesn't give us superpowers. But what he does is Jesus is affirming, I will be in this process. I will work through this process. I am there. I work in and through my community to expose sin, to deal with sin, to bring forgiveness. I'm there. Jesus is working within this community. And as we are humbly seeking him, he promises, I'm going to be right there. And I will be working through this. And it won't just be you. And then the promise in verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He's there. Um, Spurgeon writes this and I want to say this before we move to a little bit of application in all probability the obstinate friend will ridicule the action of the community and yet there is the possibility that he will be impressed thereby and led to a better mind at any rate from the first personal visit of the injured brother down to the last act of disownment nothing has been done vindictively but all has been affectionately carried out with the view of setting the brother right. The trespasser who will not be reconciled has incurred much guilt by resisting the attempts of love made in obedience to the command of the great head of the church. So, three things in application I'd like to say. One, uh, looking at this passage, we've got to take personal sin seriously. As I said earlier, it doesn't just affect you, it affects the whole community. So, are there lies of sin that you are believing? Are you trusting the truth of Scripture? That when God says He is sufficient, are you looking for something else to satisfy and to fulfill you? Are you trusting that? And then what steps do you need to take to get away from whatever temptation is in your life? Secondly, we must take sin in community necessarily. If you have been wronged by someone or you feel you've been wronged by someone, the biblical thing to do is to go to them and talk about it. Sometimes in talking about it, you find that it was just a a miscommunication or it was unintentional. And sometimes you may find that it was intentional. It is an act of love to go to somebody and say, I think there's something that happened here. We just need to talk about it and then deal with it. Um, and then I think the, the last ap- point of application. Let's keep in mind that this is what Jesus did for us. Notice what he said. If your brother sins against you, go to him. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came for us when we had sinned against him. He had done nothing wrong. He was not worthy of being rejected. He was not worried. uh, He was not worthy of being sinned against. And we had done that. We brought nothing to the table but sin. And Jesus came for us. He doesn't ask us to do something that he hasn't already done for us. So when we do this, get this, when we do this, it's an act of living out the gospel. 
It's a picture of what Christ has done for us. So it guards us against doing it in a way that is showy or prideful. Because the only reason we can do this is because of what Christ has done for us. So even in this, even in this thing that some of us are thinking, I could never do that, I don't want to do that, that's the most uncomfortable thing, it doesn't seem right. Even in that, rest in the fact that Christ has done that for you. Christ came for you when you weren't looking for him. And his goal was restoration. And maybe even this morning, it's the first time you've heard that. Maybe it's the first time you've understood that, that Christ came looking for you. You sinned against him and he came looking for you to set things right when you couldn't set it right yourself and in essence didn't want to set it right. He came and said, I'm here for you. I die for you. I will restore you. So this morning, renew your faith again in the gospel. Deepen your love for Christ. And let that take your heart and move it into a deeper aspect of worship. That even as Christ gives us commands and how to deal with one another, he's giving us more and more pictures of the gospel. It's so good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would love us in such a way. And God, as Christ said, temptation will come and sin will be here. It is a reality that we must face. And God, we've we've got it in our lives and being the lives of others. And Lord, this is not happy, touchy-feely. This is... This is nitty-gritty life. This is messy. God, we don't pretend to think this will be fun or easy. But God, your word promises us that this is true and this is how we should deal with it. And that in the end, you will be exalted and people will love you more. And it is for our good. So, Father, would we trust in that? Would you deepen our hearts to to know that? God, as you have dealt with us personally about our sin, would you strengthen us? Would you embolden us and empower us to fight radically against our sin with the truth of Scripture? And, Lord, God, we pray that this process would never have to happen in our fellowship. But Lord, if it does, we pray for grace. We pray that you would intervene in a powerful way. And pray that whenever we talk about this, it would always be with a deep sense of humility, knowing that we are just one of the little ones who wants you to be exalted above all else. So Lord, we love you. We pray now that you would open our hearts to worship the one who came for us when we had sinned against you. Thank you, Father. We love you and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.